All right, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is evening here on November the 27th. We're back after a little bit of a Thanksgiving hiatus. Um, good to see you, buddy. I actually got to see you a little bit over Thanksgiving, but uh, didn't see you on the holiday itself. How how was uh, how was your Thursday and uh, the rest of the weekend? My holiday was great. As you alluded to, we did so many activities last week. We played golf on last Sunday, then we bowled on Monday and we played pickleball on Wednesday and on Tuesday we had a few drinks. Uh so it was it was a, a heck of a week for our Austin activities, but the rest of my week was really nice. I have a, a little nephew in the picture now, so that was definitely a highlight of my Thanksgiving. How about yourself? That's right. I feel like yeah, bringing little kids into holiday traditions is always fun because it kind of gets you to like relive a little bit of your childhood and the things that you remember about certain things. Thanksgiving is like maybe not quite as much as like a holiday like Christmas, but for me, and I think I've shared this before, Thanksgiving is by far my favorite holiday. Just like eating, football, napping, eating, football, like rinse. All your favorite things. (laughs) All my favorite things. Unfortunately, don't really have the Patriots to enjoy these the, these these weekends, but in general, Thanksgiving very high high up there. But I have I had a bunch of nephews under the age of five. Um, none of them really enjoy the Thanksgiving foods yet, so I'm uh, I was a little more for you. Good, good. More for, more, more for me and you. Um, I, I feel like I've asked you, do you, do you have, that was like one of the number one questions in all the broadcasts, like Thanksgiving top five or even number one, what's the thing you look forward to? My dad makes great apple pie. And I was saying to him, I was like, why don't, I was like, we should make this together. Cause I know it's not, and he's like, yeah, it's not difficult to make, but it's one of those things that even though it's not difficult, it's not a regular occurrence. It only really seems to come up around Thanksgiving in particular, maybe once throughout the rest of the year. And so I always enjoy that. And I'm not even a huge dessert guy, which tells you how much I really enjoy this apple pie. And so I was, that's why I say, so we, you gotta teach me how to do this, which again, shouldn't be that difficult, but still, so I could make this for myself. Right back at you, Ricky. What do you got? How, how, how could you possibly choose? What a Sophie's choice you must have. Yeah. I know. I know. Um, I mean, this, so this year we did a little bit of less uh, home cooked stuff, but I'm always like a, I love the after Thanksgiving slider situation. So take basically everything that you like in Thanksgiving and you put it in a sweet Hawaiian roll and really just, and slather it with gravy, cranberry sauce or both. And you just can't, can't go wrong. If if the gluttony wasn't enough during the regular meal, um, just top it off right before bed with an extra, an extra helping. Yeah, how very American of you. Good thing that we were doing all those activities before to to get your appetite worked up for Thanksgiving. So you're really back to baseline zero. Yeah, I, I don't know. My baseline might have gotten up a couple couple lbs, but I'm not going to check that for until until 2024. Fair enough. Yeah. Um. Well, 
anyways, it's good is good to have you back. Good to be back. What uh, what do we got on tap this week? Yeah, so not only is it good to be back with you after a week off for the holiday, but you and I haven't been together, just the two of us, in quite a while, actually. We're coming off a fantastic run of guests. We previously had uh, Galway professor Larry Donnelly on and San Francisco district attorney Chase Boudin on and um, councilman, uh, city councilman Brandon Ward on and uh, Suffolk law professor Renee Landers on. So like this past month has been very focused on specific issues that we wanted to have full episodes on. And those have all been fantastic. If you haven't listened to any of those, would encourage you to go back. Really an incredible run that we've been on this past month. But a lot has happened in the news since then. And we figured what better time to, you know, to break out our traditional six and 60 format than for a period where we haven't actually talked in the last four or five weeks about smaller issues that we do want to hit on. So a bunch of things, Republican politics, we'll, we'll check in on the Republican field for president. We'll talk in, talk, talk about the new speaker that the Republicans elected after almost a month. Uh, Mike Johnson talk about George Santos and, and what appears to be the winding down of his saga over the past couple of years. The Supreme court came out with, a code of ethics for the first time in history. It's something we talked a lot about in previous episodes. So we'll, we'll check in on that. Um, we'll discuss briefly an update on the war in the Middle East and <clears throat> what's happening in Israel and Palestine. And finally, one of my pet topics is talking about debt here in the United States. So we'll we'll check in on that. So uh, really excited because these are all things that have been percolating in my mind and you and I maybe have checked in briefly about them, but it'll be nice to give them a little bit more focus uh, in the next hour. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Uh, reminder to everyone that post-holiday break, we're very much in like the gift-giving season, Ricky. And so if you're looking for something nice to give people, uh, maybe check out the guys over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know, they've been bringing you this podcast and building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston's 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, this is not only gift season, but it's Christmas tree season. I believe I saw something on the social media of you going out and getting your Christmas tree just this past weekend. Very early of you. I'm sure you were the one driving that. Uh, but Ricky, what do you buy a tree that loves jewelry? No, I'm not. No, nothing. Just got to get it some more rings, Ricky. Oh, that's, yeah. That's, yeah, that's good. There we go. All right. Well, without uh, further ado, let, let's hop into the topics. Well, Ricky, for better and mostly for worse, over the course of this year, Republicans have been the ones that have been dominating the news cycle here in the United States. And it's been a little while since we checked in on the presidential, the state of the presidential field, the, the candidate field for the Republican nomination. Last time we checked in was really post first debate, which had eight candidates on the stage. Donald Trump was looming offstage and in, in the background. But we had really had this diverse field of candidates. And the most striking thing that's happened over the past month or two is the winnowing of that field. We are now down to just seven major uh, candidates for the presidency. Obviously, President Trump is far and away the leader. Vying for second place are Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. 
somewhere down a little bit more are, are Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy. And then really in the background are Asa Hutchinson and Doug Burgum. But those are the seven. And so what's happened in the past few weeks is former Vice President Mike Pence surprisingly uh, suspended his campaign. And then South Carolina Senator Tim Scott also followed suit. Two candidates who were thought to be amongst the potential favorites when this all started, suspending their campaigns after failing to really gain any traction. So I was looking at this historically, Ricky, and Axios did a really good breakdown of this. This is the smallest presidential field at this point in the race in over a century. And this is when we're talking about like non-incumbents. So for example, last time the Republicans didn't have an incumbent was 2015, November of 2015. At this point, there were 15 Republicans still in the race for the nomination um, in November of 2015. 12 of those stayed in the race through the Iowa primaries, the Iowa caucuses. And then the last time the Democrats didn't have an incumbent was in November of 2019. And at, the, at November of 2019, Ricky, Democrats had 18 candidates that were still vying for president. So while it seems in some ways inevitable, and if this was that President Trump is going to get the nomination and, and be nominated for the as a Republican candidate for president, and maybe if that is your reaction and that's all it is to it, that's totally fine. But this is not only historic in the fact that the field has been windowed so much at this point in time, but this is really what everyone, all of these other candidates had said, that if we wanted to have a shot, we needed to winnow the field and really get down to President Trump versus somebody else let them, let, and let those two candidates really battle it out in the States. That hasn't happened yet, of course, but it's not that far away from happening either. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a really interesting tidbit um i guess i'm not entirely surprised like for for the reasons that you said that even though there isn't an incumbent it feels like there's an incumbent kind yeah. of situation. yeah um, no i think that, that that's a, a really good point is in in some ways president trump has ran like an incumbent and great credit to him and his team as you and i had said previously of the strategy of skipping the debates has only helped him further. He's he's widened his leads nationally and in some of the early voting states over the course of this time. And in many ways, he has turned his attention from this primary already into the potential general election matchup with President Biden, who's also in some ways turned his attention to that potential matchup. And again, that is overwhelmingly likely to be the case, that President Trump is going to run away with this. And in three months or six months, we're going to look back and be like, I can't even believe we wasted so much of our thought in our in our time writing and talking about these candidates who really had no shot, like in hindsight, had no shot. But again, what what is you know former ambassador, former governor Nikki Haley saying? What is Governor DeSantis saying to, to that people? If we can get through these first nominating states and we emerge as the primary challenge, we can give President Trump a real run for his money that people will, all the anti-Trump people will coalesce around me, whoever this candidate is, and then we have a real shot. And that was always going to be the only chance. And that's why President Trump was able to emerge in 2015 and 2016 is because the field never really coalesced, right? You had like what I what I just say, that we had 15 candidates at the time, we had 12 through Iowa, that we, it continued through many of the early voting states where all these people we're splitting the vote in the primary and President Trump was able to walk away with 30% of it and win all of the delegates in these states. 
what Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are really saying is that if we get down to it, I think that I could get 40% of uh, or whatever it is. And like, that gives you a real shot. But I mean, in the Republican field, where is Trump polling now? He's still polling like basically 50% and everyone else is fighting for scraps, right? Sure. Yeah. You could certainly make the case that he's his poll numbers are greater than everyone else's combined. Right. So, I mean, I guess, you know, to the topic at hand, the existing Republican field not named Donald Trump. I get, you know, from a from a Tim Scott, like being trying to like frame himself as like a more hopeful Republican candidate to a Mike Pence, which I really just don't like. Yes, from a serious politician, obviously, previously a vice president has that going for him. But other than that, like really not not going to be able to differentiate himself by from Trump and then also not going to be able to ingratiate himself to Trump voters over Trump. So like that seems like it's such a losing candidate candidacy. And then what are you left with? Like Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Ramaswamy. It's a and DeSantis. I like I'm like forgetting about him. Um, you know, you know, credit to like we had this like that Republican draft months ago and clearly shows what I know about the Republican Party versus others who are more on the inside. Mo McInerney saying it's going to be Trump all the way. And Nikayla was like, I like I think Nikki Haley's got a shot. And yeah, and I was an idiot. I said DeSantis. And oh, that was the right pick at the time. <laughs> he's looked terrible yeah. um, start to finish. And so I yeah, it's. Does it make you just kind of like sigh a little bit? Because it just doesn't feel like we have and still doesn't feel like we have any real options. Still doesn't feel like any like it's you're already holding your nose to elect somebody and you haven't even like you never had someone who you're like, ah, if they, you know, I kind of like what they're doing. Like maybe they won't even win, but I'm at least glad that they're there. Like, who do you who do you have? Who are you looking at? Being like, oh, I I'm, I appreciate what they're saying, and I kind of get behind it. Well, I think I've said this to you. If I haven't said it on air before, I definitely said it to you off air, is that I'm a, I'm a big Nikki Haley fan and would be very happy to support her. I don't necessarily agree with all of her takes on everything, but I, I feel like she would be, in terms of character and experience, a potentially excellent president. Um, so, of course, I've been excited by her rise. I think She's been phenomenal in the debate performances for for whatever that is worth, and that, that to me, I'm hoping what I, what I I was actually texting with Nikayla and, and Mo was during the last Republican debate, and I was like, I really like Tim Scott as a person. I like Chris Christie as a person, but both I was like, both of them need to get out, and they need to get out fast because those are the type of voters that would not exclusively, but I would imagine a large number of their potential supporters would gravitate towards a Nikki Haley over a DeSantis or, or a Trump. And if if they can get out, I don't think Christie's going to get out before New Hampshire. But if if he did, I think she would have potentially a real shot there. Yeah, I mean, and this is where it feels like even if we didn't go to like a multi-party system, at least during the primaries, if we could get some kind of like a party factions that we clearly have, but are sort of like these unspoken divisions within the parties to like work out amongst themselves who they want their standard bearer to be so that when we do have a debate, even if it's early on, that it can really be like, here are the differences in my candidacy instead of 
you know, Ramaswamy making comments about Nikki Haley and about her heels and like whatever. And then her calling him scum like that. It, like to me, that's, that's such a waste of time. And I think obviously there are, you know, if, if you look at Ramaswamy as like a Trump acolyte and Nikki Haley is kind of more traditional conservative Republican, whatever, then her and Chris Christie, if they had gotten together and like figured something out so that they could spend their time differentiating what they're offering versus something like a Ramaswamy, I think that would be at least make for some interesting debate on specific issues. And instead it becomes, well, A, you have people within their own factions trying to differentiate themselves, which they can't because they're not really that different. And it's just more about who's who's maybe better, who comes across better in a debate stage, who has some like, you know, more pointed one-liners. And I, I don't know, the whole, the whole thing to me is just like, it's, it's disappointing because I think about like what I learned about in like, you know, my first like civics kind of class and to see that this is like, well, how it's playing out in reality is just like a very uh, discouraging thing. Oh, Ricky, I missed you. Uh, but the, the fourth Republican debate is coming up next week. It's December 6th. For those of you that are interested in trying to determine if there's any one of these candidates you might be able to support. And then I believe we'll have two more in early January before we get into the Iowa caucuses and New Hampshire primary, which are, which are coming up in less than six and eight weeks, respectively. So it's it's one of those things, Ricky, where it seems so far away. And we were talking about this back in May and we were talking about this in September, but it's it's here, you know, and, and like as, as so many things happen with time, it, it doesn't never seems real, like it's real until all of a sudden it is. And we're about this has all been kind of prelude and pretense. We're about to really get into it starting in six weeks. Yeah. And and maybe if there's like a little bit of a preamble towards this next Republican debate, I think, that, you know, compared to historically there is some element of um of this debate that is going to be very interesting to track and i think you you've alluded to this before in our conversations just that foreign policy being sort of a substantive portion of the debate in ways that it hasn't been before i think you know all, most all republicans can get behind cutting taxes but the this idea of how, like who do we support and how um, on an international stage and then like what is our position relative to China um, now that the field is more narrowed down and to two people who at least who neither of whose views I'm super uh, <laughs> jazzed about but at least they have views that they can articulate um, I think that you know especially the dynamic between Haley and Ramaswamy will be interesting Um I'll give it that. I'm hoping for interesting. I think that's the the most uh, optimistic we'll get you on that topic. So hopefully I can liven you up a little bit. Although I'm not sure with these two topics coming up as we're staying in the Republican politics field. But speaking of different factions within the Republican Party, the speaker race was a disaster. Something, Ricky, that you and I had talked about back in January when originally Kevin McCarthy had been had had the historic weight, the longest weight, the most amount of ballots for a speaker in 160 years. We knew that his time always was going to be short. It's a 
this is a reference I've made repeatedly this year, Ricky, like this, the sword of Damocles that was just kind of hanging over his neck the entire time. Finally, it fell on, on this latest spending fight when he essentially brokered a deal with Democrats to continue funding the government so that the government would not shut down. We then had a, an absolute wild few weeks in the Republican House where they, they put forth these speakers. It was Steve Scalise and it was Jim Jordan and it was Tom Emmer and one by one. All these guys got knifed in the back. And finally, Mike Johnson uh, emerges out of obscurity to take the, the, the role of the Speaker of the House of Representatives, third in line to the presidency in an incredible turn of events, a guy that even someone who was pretty plugged into like congressional politics and Republican politics was not someone that I had heard of before this whole thing started. He is... If people don't know at this point, he is the speaker, the least experienced speaker in over 140 years. He is uh, from Louisiana. He was only in his fourth term. He had never previously served in any senior leadership position or as a full committee chair. He had no relationships to speak of with Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer, let alone Kamala Harris and, and Joe Biden. And yet he is now one of the most powerful people in the United States. Ricky, what have you seen from him over the his first six weeks or so in in this position <laughs> wow what an introduction um so i mean i i guess right coming in as like a far right uh type that he i mean i guess if you could call it that has like moderated or risen a bit towards the like the position and like done some things that he probably would have you know, decried individuals for doing in the past as just like, I kind of, I guess I have to do this now because otherwise not literally nothing will happen. Um, so that's good person. <laughs> I, I, I get like, yeah, if I have to find like a, I guess he could have really shut everything down if he wanted to, and he hasn't so far done that. Um, but I don't know, maybe, maybe I could back up a bit and just like ask you about this, this process. Cause I really didn't know much about, the nomination nominating process of the speaker of the house but it is basically a majority in the house so like both democrats and republicans get a vote um but in these super tightly contested houses where just a few votes sway the 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 nomination per se it's it's actually been very interesting to see how just a couple a handful of republicans can basically derail republican nominated candidates who have by majority of republicans been nominated through their own party and like i as far as i understand it this is actually on this doesn't happen no it, it doesn't and it, the republican house has been almost ungovernable for over a decade, right? Going back to this is why John Boehner gave up the speakership. Paul Ryan kind of rose reluctantly to take it, but was not a, a fit for it. McCarthy obviously couldn't handle it. And it does make you, you know, give, it forces you to kind of give more of a, more kudos, more of a hat tip to Speaker Pelosi for managing her conference in, in a, a tighter way. 
if you think back to 2018, there was there was an element in the Democratic Party on, on the far left in particular, but even some centrists that were kind of saying, like, let's let's mount a challenge to her. But pretty much they all fell in line. And that's the way that Republicans just haven't been over the last decade in particular, in general, and, you know, the last few years in particular. Yeah, it was a fascinating thing. Obviously, Johnson being somewhat of an outsider, somewhat of a newcomer, he had the ability that he's never really had to make hard decisions and make compromises and actually govern because what does that get you? That gets you like, you're going to have to say no to people and you're going to have to make make people, yeah, make people upset and you're going to make enemies. And that's what happened with in a row, McCarthy, Scalise, Jordan, and Emmer, like there were knives out for those guys because they had been years in positions of power. So yeah, I think it's, it's been a, a fascinating process it's in some ways it's a beautiful reflection of like democracy is that people really have to come together to elect someone that they feel is going to be able to move you know democracy forward on the other hand it's what people would point to in more authoritarian governments is saying what a mess democracy is like they can't even elect someone to like run their government like there was a period of time there and certainly like the Israel, the massacre, the October 7th massacre happened in the middle of this time where we didn't have a Speaker of the House and more or less weren't going to be able to react in an emergency. You know, say what you will, like this emergency kind of happened abroad. And while it touched the United States in significant ways, it wasn't an emergency really on in our land. I mean, God forbid something would have happened like in a situation like that, obviously there would be a rallying to the flag effect, but this is what people would say of like, what a disaster this entire thing has been. And quite honestly, that'd be hard to disagree with over the last month. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've talked in the past about um, just kind of like norms um, within, within our administration, like within our sort of political administration, things that you do just because this is how it's always been done, but it's not a rule, right? It's not a rule that the, you know, the party in the majority can have its own election. And then everybody in that party then supports the elected person as speaker, right? Because it's not a rule, just a handful of people were like, well, we know all of the Democrats are going to vote against this person. So all we have to do is, is a few of us have to stand up. And, you know, that in many ways that derailed like someone like a Tom Emmer, who's, ostensibly more middle of the road than than Mike Johnson was but I guess like how do you feel about the state of democracy when someone like a Mike Johnson who is you know he was part of Trump's defense team in the impeachment he was one of those election deniers he's oh he was a person looking to invalidate electors is now the speaker of the house yeah, when you put it like that. Not well, I, and sorry, <laughs> sorry. Obviously, I just like handpicked some things, but I'm sure there are some other nice things that could be said about this guy. But he belongs to a like a fringe element of the Republican Party, and he is now the Speaker of the House because right. that fringe element has the power that they have, and that's not a democ that right. That's not like a democracy. Yeah. No, I think that's a really a really fair point. I actually don't think he's quite as fringe out there. I think he he was uh, like tolerable to to the the fringe element because of some of like the things that you just mentioned. But I think actually he's probably more in step with where the Republican base is, the Trump base is, than any of the other people that we mentioned. And I think it's totally fair to say that that's not where the United States is. But if you are Republican, like Republicans, you know, they were 
unlike the Senate, the House's proportion, and again, there's the problems with the apportionment, but generally it, it's it's hard to argue that the House isn't kind of fairly representative of the country as as a whole. They they the country elected Republicans to elect and a, a Republican speaker. Mike Johnson fits squarely within that. And so again, you might not like that, but that he is theoretically representative of the people that we chose to represent us. Would would you, and maybe we can wrap on this, would you say, and I actually don't really know this well enough, that like the Republican members of the House are like fairly evenly split between more moderate sort of traditional like your i mean mitt romney's obviously it was in the senate but like the mitt romney types of republicans versus yeah the jim jordans or is it still no, the house is the house is dominated now by what i would say is the trump base uh and that's not true in the senate where i think there is a, a split and maybe even more tending towards establishment uh or more traditional conservatives but i would say the house in the last i mean since trump has come on you know it's every couple of years and Trump, while he was in office and while he has not been in office, has gone after anyone that has not fallen in line behind him. He's accumulated uh, a really loyal base in there. And that's where I think Mike Johnson is in the center of. And again, you don't have to like that. And I think you, you gave really good reasons to kind of maybe be scared of that. But I think it's in a very messy way. It almost kind of function is functioning like it's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess to, to that extent, at least he's kind of more of a reflection of what who's in the house today. Yes. The yeah. last thing I'll say about that is that I think maybe if there is a scary element, it is that he, you know, obviously Trump didn't like out and out uh, sort of endorse someone for the, the house speakership, but he did basically kill Tom Emmer's nomination by saying, you know, I ah, can't trust this guy. And so having that kind of having those like Trump loyalty bona fides being really the only thing like not you couldn't name anything else this guy has done. So really like for like the only evidence that you have as a Republican of like who he is as a person are the stuff that he's done on behalf of Trump. And it's like such a creepy like, uh, <laughs> I mean, like, for whatever you think of the guy, e even if you love him, this, like, unwavering loyalty to him over anything else is gotta be, like, a bit unnerving. Yeah, I'd say more than a bit, considering that coming off the previous topic that we just did, that he is still more than likely going to be a Republican candidate, and... I'm sure we'll talk about this in, in upcoming weeks, that he is polling even or ahead of President Biden and met not only nationally, but in many of the key swing states. So it, it certainly wouldn't be shocking a year from now to have a president-elect Trump with a speaker and a House majority that is firmly indebted to him. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know that we'll, we'll wrap Republican politics with George Santos, which I guess is uh, lighter in some ways because the stakes are so much lower in some ways. But uh, while there have been three previous attempts to expel George Santos, and I will just take for granted that anybody listening to this show knows the general saga of, of George uh, Santos and how his election was really, if you've ever seen the movie Catch Me If You Can, Frank Abagnale Jr., who just kind of lied his way into all of these professions. That's essentially what George Santos is accused of doing. 
uh, he is in serious uh, like criminal like legal jeopardy uh, because he's facing over 30 federal counts of, of a variety of charges. But uh, despite the three previous attempts to expel him that were unsuccessful this past week, the House Ethics Committee, which had conducted an in-depth extended investigation of the allegations, came forth with like a 55-page report about on these allegations, and it was a damning report. Uh, after it came out, uh, Santos said that he wouldn't run again in 2024, but the Republican chair of that, the House Ethics Committee, uh, Mike Guest from Mississippi, has already come out and filed another motion to expel him and it looks like it could happen and again this would be historic like so many things are again for better or for worse these days where he, um he would potentially be only the sixth member of the house ever to have to be expelled from the house which is like pretty crazy to, to see so i don't know ricky it, it reminded me of a couple of things that we had talked about previously where you know, this idea of just like like law and order and justice and how you know, we have to hold people like accountable and 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 also what I I had said is like let's go through the process of theoretically you know innocent let's go through the whole process here give everyone their due process and innocent to proven guilty but they did the investigation it came back it was damning if they expel him I have not only no problem with that I think it would be a real step forward for people that actually believe that doesn't matter what side of the aisle we're on have to be some standards here yeah i mean um i guess better late better late than never it's interest it's it's like funny that we get to almost you know wrap the year 2023 on this i remember when i brought up this at, at the beginning of 2023 being like i have no idea what's going on but the new york times is obsessed with this guy george santos who's apparently made up everything he's ever done and anybody he's ever known in order to get elected um yeah i mean i guess you know on the i think one of the good things about the process that they went through was that it was a republican-led house sort of inquiry um because in the era that we live right now the politicization of basically anything means that if somebody from the other side is on the investigation then it's not a real investigation yeah. that everything is a witch hunt um so yeah, I mean, I th I think you're right. At, at some, it's good to know there are still some lines. There's, yeah, there's there is a bar. <laughs> it might be uh, so low that I can't see it, but it does exist. But it was funny because he did come out. Santos did come out and try to be like, "This is just all politicized and it's a witch hunt." And it's like no one's buying that, dude. Because Republicans need every vote they can get. You know, what I mean, they would have looked the other way for <laughs> they tried to a whole a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, but what what Ricky, I'm curious. So he went on X the other day and did like an X spaces type of thing. Did you hear this at all? I didn't listen to it. Okay. I classically read about it in the Times. Okay, but I, so so maybe I want to read you a quote that maybe you're already aware of. But I do think this is interesting. And so he said, "quote Within the ranks of the United States Congress, there's felons galore. There's people with all sorts of shisty backgrounds. I have colleagues who are more worried about getting drunk every night with the next lobbyist they're going to screw and pretend like none of us know what's going on and sell off the American people, not show up to vote because they're too hungover, or not show up to vote at all and just give their card out like fucking candy for someone else to vote for them. This shit happens every single week. Where are the ethics investigations? Yeah, and I like I don't honestly don't believe that he's like completely lying about that. I wish he had some receipts that on his way out, he would burn, burn everybody or any credibility at all. 
Yeah. Wait. You, like, yeah, you wish he did, but I don't, I don't doubt that this is like going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, there, there are all kinds of ethical and it's like, there are all kinds of ethical issues with how we have done things in the past with just sort of this, like, again, like kind of the norms and you would assume the good intent. And it's like, I don't really think that you can do that anymore. Right. Like even he got in without any, there was no vetting on him at all. They didn't check. They didn't check that he graduated from where he said he, like some of the most basic stuff that's free and Googleable. nobody thought to do it. Right. And so that like, at some point we, yeah, I guess, you know, the, what he what did Reagan say? Right. Trust, but verify there's, there has to be some set, semblance of like decorum and and really and and rules that you can expect your elected officials to follow and that's just like the i yeah i don't know maybe something more will come of this i think i think what would be a shame is if they stopped at this right here's the most egregious of examples but he's he's completely the outlier and i think that that's that would be the real shame that like, Hey, we can use him to say that, of course we police ourselves. Don't worry about it. Right. Whereas like, okay, you obviously you can kick this guy out. Um, but there are other people who are doing things that, that maybe don't warrant expulsion, but warrant the American public being aware and some guardrails being out there so that people can't take advantage of these types of situations anymore. Um, the one last thing I'll say about him, and I hadn't, I didn't know this. He's, he's our age. He's like four years, four, four months younger than us, which is wild. <laughs> yeah. I don't know you if that makes you feel the, the better or worse balls on this guy. That's <laughs> something I can't imagine. But Ricky, speaking of examples of don't worry, we police ourselves. You don't have to worry about it. When we come back, we'll talk about the Supreme Court's new code of ethics. So continuing on the subject of ethics, Supreme Court ethics have really been the elephant in the room of all of the decisions over the past year due to some incredible reporting by ProPublica, particularly targeting Justice Thomas and the relationship he had with a Republican mega donor, Harlan Crow. Justice Thomas would tell you and Harlan Crow would tell you that they didn't do anything wrong, that they were they were friends and that they were you know, doing what friends do and going away together and giving each other gifts as friends do. Most other people in the public would tell you that it, the relationship at least it seemed improper, if not was actually Im improper in terms of someone who was investing in causes that have political bent and potentially could have before the court and having such a cozy relationship with uh, a justice. The, the reports are kind of mind-blowing, the, the the sorts of perks that Justice Thomas was getting. The ProPublica continued that Justice Alito was also the beneficiary of some, some favors that went unreported and gifts that went unreported. Continue, if you continued on, um, Justice Sotomayor was potentially guilty of some conflict of interest things regarding her books and her speaker engagements. And there were very few justices that had uh, completely clean hands. But Thomas in particular and, and Alito as well were, were really the most egregious examples of this. So there has been a lot of outcry 
that the Supreme Court be bound by a code of ethics like every other court in the the federal government is and, and state governments as well. And it's, so it's something that we've talked about. We talked about it with Professor Barry McDonald when he was on last year. We talked about it with Professor Renee Landers when she was on a month ago. You, Ricky, you and I had talked about it over the summer when it came out. And just two weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago today, the justices did come out with a code of ethics, the first time it's ever happened. I actually just want to read the, the preamble to it. And so it says, quote, the undersigned justices are promulgating this code of conduct to set out succinctly and gather in one place the ethics, rules, and principles that guide the conduct of the members of the court. For the most part, these rules and principles are not new. The court has long had the equivalent of common law ethics rules, that is, a body of rules derived from a variety of sources, including statutory provisions, the code that applies to other members of the federal judiciary, ethics advisory opinions issued by the Judicial Conference, Committee on Codes of Conduct, and Historic Practice. The absence of a code, however, has led in recent years to the misunderstanding that the justices of this court, unlike all other jurists in this country, regard themselves unrestricted by any ethics rules. To dispel this misunderstanding, we're issuing this code, which largely, largely represents a codification of principles that we have long regarded as governing our conduct. So the optimist would say, look, this is a real step forward. This is the first time that the Supreme Court has ever put forth a code of conduct by which they say they're going to abide. Pessimists would say there is no enforcement mechanism. This is just laying out abstract principles by which the justice say, hey, don't worry, we'll police ourselves. Yeah, a little bit of an LOL. Also, it's sort of saying that we've always been, abide like despite all of the things that have been uncovered about our behavior and possibly problematic dealings we are oh we've always been bound by this code of ethics and i guess we'll just put it on paper so everyone is aware that that we have this i think i i think what you mentioned about there's like no enforceability is obviously an issue but i guess to some degree that is like the point of the supreme court that like they are appointed with the express intent of not having this like this possibility of somebody somewhere deciding that they can be removed for something. Is that accurate? Yeah, and that was actually a, a big, obviously this has been a debate in judicial circles over the last year and quite quite honestly longer in, in some places. But one of the conservative pushbacks to this was that like giving them an inch gives them a mile. Like the Article 3 sets out that justices can serve through good behavior. What doesn't say what good behavior is, but it, it pretty explicitly the, the design of the federal judiciary was to put them above these kind of like theoretically partisan politics that people could be removed or impeached just because we didn't like their decision. So a lot of scholars and people in the legal community were arguing that they sh the justices shouldn't this kind of quote unquote cave to this peer pressure that they're getting because that's essentially giving up some of their constitutional power and, and ceding it to Congress or whomever to say that like, we'll, we'll allow you to put some reins on us in which is really for some people against the constitution. Other people certainly don't don't feel the same way. And the argument is that this didn't nearly go far enough. It's really just lip service to this idea of that we're going to abide. And what, what does good behavior mean? 
well, I think you could fairly argue that what some of these justices have been doing would long have not been. And that's what Professor Lander said. She was like, Justice Abe Fortas had to resign under heavy pressure for stuff that wasn't nearly as egregious as what theoretically Justice Thomas and Justice Alito have been doing. So if good behavior is all relevant and no one can is going to enforce, if you're not going to enforce or even say what good behavior is, then then what what is what are we even doing? Yeah, then that like and it almost feels like we need a, a, a third or a second independent body that's also right because you can't rely on you can't rely on our political institutions to have any oversight over these things because of how politicized they are. I mean, we've talked in the past sort of about this kind of idea of selective enforcement, like even if you came up with hard and fast rules that doesn't ensure that people who you know are supportive of what the judiciary is doing don't look the other way versus and versus you know vice versa when the when folks are kind of thinking the opposite that we don't like what they're doing and so we want we want to remove them and now we have a letter of the law that we can find an infringement and and take take matters into our own hands to do that especially when you have this like notion of the lifetime appointment um so like <laughs> being able to replace a uh a sitting justice that you don't like with someone that you do like when you're in power seems counter uh counter to the intent of the supreme court but it doesn't change the problem that we have a Supreme Court that can basically act with impunity. No, agreed. And again, the optimist, optimist in me, and I, I read a, a good Washington Post article on this, so I'll give tip my cap there. This this is not like an original idea of mine, but um, what the article was saying was that, you know, I think it's totally fair to note the absence of an enforcement mechanism and say that this is really just seems in some ways like get off our backs all right, you wanted a code of ethics. We we did a code of ethics. Leave us alone now, right? And even though it doesn't actually really do anything, and that's I think totally fair to point out. On the other hand, saying like what like the bedrock principles and the guidelines of the court actually is an important step. And they compared it to like the Chicago principles of free expression that were brought up in 2014. I don't know if you were aware of those that the University of Chicago came together and pretty much said that we we stand for free speech here. We are open to the, the ex expression of ideas and uh, and open dialogue and debate, and we don't uh, we're not going to say safe spaces and trigger warnings. Like that's not what we do here. Like the education is meant to test your ideas against ideas that are different from yours and that could, to, to challenge yourself. And did that actually do anything like physically on campus? Not necessarily, but what it did was say that like we were going to set out in writing what are the things that that we believe and when you when there's any room to say like what good behavior is and for people to say like that's a gray area theoretically this does lay out fairly explicitly what's okay and what's not okay and you can you can agree or disagree with what they laid out you can agree or disagree with like the fact that there's no enforcement mechanism but putting down on paper what good behavior means to these justices and to say all nine of you that we're going to sign on to abide by these guidelines in a society that struggles with norms and like history and tradition and what's okay, it's a, in some ways this is significant. Yeah, and hopefully it'll serve as kind of a wake up call of of some sorts that people are 
in this day and age, people are watching and they have opportunities to bring like no matter what, what you do can still come to light. And so having these guidelines in writing to some degree is at least something like, hey, you said you were going to do this. This is what you're actually doing. And now like they don't they don't line up. And so I I think I think you're I think you you like like in (laughs) in many of the things that we've talked about today, it's better than nothing. Yeah, no. And I do think like that's in in just to say, I think it's more than that, right? It is better than nothing, but it's also, let's not kind of poo-poo a step that's never happened before. Like the, the public through a good independent press, independent, I'm sure people would disagree with that, but largely this was good journalism to uncover what is like factually happening. And the people spoke out and demanded, they put enough pressure on their lawmakers on the Supreme Court to say like, come up with something. They did come up with something. And it's, uh, I do think like, this was, I'm sure Justice Roberts struggled with this. Like we talked about it with Professor Landers, like this was going to be hard to get not these nine people to sign on to anything together. And the fact that they all agreed on these things, even though they probably, you know, disagree significantly on so many other things is significant. So I do think some credit is due to Justice Roberts and the Supreme Court in general. Yeah. Uh, and maybe just a parting thought on this and Professor Landers, I think, brought this up pretty nicely just like this crisis of faith in the court just in the last i mean i mean depending on what side of the court you're on you may have you may have felt this for a, for a long time and and maybe now you feel like it's in it's in a better place but this perception that the court is as politicized as it is has led to people reading into decisions in in certain ways. And so at least as a measure to kind of say that, you know, that, that the court still believes in the kind of its foundational principles and they're reaffirming that through this code of ethics, I think is, I think that's important as well. All right. One more planned topic that we had was, as I said at the top, one of my pet topics, which is debt here in the United States. But I actually don't want to talk about the national debt for once. Uh, I want to talk about personal debt. And Ricky, I mentioned this to you a couple of weeks ago, and it kind of caught my eye as something that I felt like has flown under the radar. Because obviously you had the pandemic, and then you had the big bounce back from the pandemic, and you had inflation, which has dominated the, the economy and the news cycles over the past two and a half years. And we've always kind of talked about this, this ideal soft landing that the Fed was going to do where you're they're able to get inflation under control without completely sending the United States economy and the global economy into a, a recession. People said that it was kind of fabled and it couldn't be done. And increasingly, it looks like what the Fed has done and what other circumstances the market has done has put us on track for this soft landing where inflation does seem to be going down, knock on wood. And yet jobs, unemployment has stayed kind of steady. And the question then becomes, Ricky, is how is that possible? Like many famous, important, really intelligent economists told us that this wasn't possible. So one thing that caught my eye recently was the jobs numbers came out. I mean, the like the numbers came out in quarter three and retail spending was up higher, almost double than expected. And GDP rose almost 5% in quarter three. 
how? Like that's like that's the question is how is that happening when rates can we all know that rates continue to go up, right? Anyone that's trying to borrow money what for any project around your house, or let alone to try to buy a new car or a new house or take out a loan or anything like that, you know how high rates are right now. So what's buoying the economy in quarter three and I'm sure in quarter four is consumer spending. And so total household debt, the New York the New York Fed uh, just a couple weeks ago said that total household debt rose 1.3% to $17.9 trillion in the third quarter. So how individual households owe over $17 trillion. Over the same period, credit card borrowing levels jumped 4.7% to $1.8 trillion. That's a new high score. So like that's like that. And what I said to you was, so not only essentially what you're telling me is the economy is being propped up by with people who are buying things on credit. Not all that's happening. While in October, student loan, student debt payments were reinitiated after a you know, three-year pause. That's happening. And in addition to that, credit like credit card, the the interest rates on credit cards are tied to the Fed fund rate. So they're at all-time highs too. So people are borrowing more money at a higher rate while many of those same people owe more money in student loans. To me, this, these are like flashing red lights that should be telling people, I don't think a soft landing is coming. Yeah, and, and um, I, I, I recall when you first sent me some of these statistics that I felt a similar sense of... Um, panic to a degree that I think like a lot of uh yeah no I mean exactly what you said that a lot of consumer spending is driven by credit card debt um and that credit card debt is like by far the most untenable debt and it's obviously being paid by someone right so if if the credit card company starts seeing massive levels of default we could be in some real trouble I think there are some things that are um maybe running counter to this one we've still had quite a bit of wage growth in the past year two years like uh i think labor bureau of labor statistics i was just pulling this up because i heard numbers like this said that wages increased 4.5 percent um in 2021 and 2.6 percent in 2020 so like right around you know our standard metric of inflation around three and a half to four percent right so wages in many ways have been keeping up with a lot of um, the increased cost of goods, while at the same time, credit card debt is sort of, is a separate but but parallel problem. I think one thing that is kind of difficult to understand is how a lot of um, these new credit instruments are impacting the market, especially with like young people. So I don't know if you noted, I don't, I'm probably one of the few people that are buying junk on Instagram, but like a lot of um, anytime you get offered to buy something, you get these like pay or later pay now or later options, um, which depending on who's using them and depending how they get reported into credit card debt can be a good or bad thing, right? Like if you know that you can afford X thing today and they're going to split it into four payments for you and you don't have to pay any interest on that, that's a benefit to you that may be added to the credit card debt pile, but that's not really something that you would consider debt because you actually have the funds to like cover it. So, I, I mean, I, I mean, I think about this in a lot of ways, similar to how I think about the unemployment rate, right? Like vastly understated, maybe in some ways, maybe overstated in this instance, I'm, I think, it, I think you are absolutely right. Like if it is as bad as it, as it sounds, 
it could be a very canary in the coal mine situation. And three months from now, we'll be talking about this. I'm also cautiously optimistic that our credit individual credit rating system is still more or less intact. I think there were a lot of protections put in um, some consumer protections put in in 2008 that kind of tried to limit some of the predatory lending that credit card companies could do. So people still have credit limits that are more or less tied to their um, income levels. Yeah. I mean, I like, I remember five years ago that thinking mine was far too high and certainly when the holidays come around, there's a lot of ancillary expenditures with gift giving and whatever else um, that that really could, you know, if, like you said, if it's as bad as it could be, this could be really bad for us. Um, I'm curious how, I guess my last thought is I'm curious how student debt will roll into all of this because the Biden administration was able to like roll in some sort of softer uh, reintroduction into this student loan repayment regimes. Um, yeah, but I, I think you're right. Like that's, you know, even for for small amounts of debt, like I think I have maybe 15,000 left and I'm uh, paying like 150 a month that I wasn't paying before. Um, so yeah, certainly meaningful amounts of money depending on um, de- yeah, depending on how much debt you still have outstanding. So yeah, long, long story short, like I, like, I think when, when you put them together like that, it sounds really bad. I'm, I'm not entirely sure it's that bad, but you could be right. You have been right before. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm not right, but I think about this time last year, I was like, I'm pretty sure Russia's going to invade Ukraine. <laughs> And you're like, nah, nah. So again, I, I hope to be wrong on this, but unfortunately I've been right before. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back for our final topic. The war in Israel and Palestine continues to rage and there have been notable updates in the past week. So we want to check in on that, which we will do when we come back. Yeah, so ending our um, our 6 and 60 here, although I don't know how well we've kept to our our, our various time limits, but I think more or less on track. Um, we wanted to give a little bit of an update on what's been going on um, in the war between Israel and Hamas. I think in general, there are some sobering and some somber statistics that I wanted to talk about a little bit, but I perhaps think it's best to start with more or less the positive development which is that we are in the midst of a four-day ceasefire right now, beginning with um, a, I'm going to put air quotes on it, a prisoner hostage exchange um, that started a couple days ago, uh, which is uh, excellent and incredible um, that innocent Israelis are being returned um, to Israel, obviously with a lot of trauma, but alive. Um, but also Palestinians who have been in Israeli prisons are getting to go home as well. I think, um, I think that is one part of the story that I wanted to talk about too, but maybe I'll take a second to see what else you've sort of been thinking about since we've 
kind of left this topic when we, um, yeah, when we last chatted. So many things, but as someone that has been a proponent of diplomacy and engaging people like you not only disagree with, but sometimes really hate diplomacy, this is a win for diplomacy. And in addition to all of the people that now get to be reunited with their families, like this has, this pause has allowed aid to go into Gaza in ways that it hadn't been able to over the past month and get to hospitals and regular people that need need supplies and whether those supplies are are food or water or shelter or medicine like that that's it's another huge benefit of it and I just I think tonight that I saw that they were going to extend the pause for two more days potentially more uh, swaps of of hostages and more time for aid to get into these places and the people the countries that brokered this are the United States Qatar and Egypt and Maybe not the three countries that you would have picked to be, but there are three countries that are critical stakeholders in this region and were able to get together. And and this is me. This is one of the very few bright spots we've had in the last six weeks in this. And while it's still an absolute tragedy, what's happening over there, this is at least the one glimmer of of hope. And so, yeah, I think you were right to start with that. Yeah. It, uh, the Yes, I think this is definitely, um, you know, after October 7th, it almost seemed like something like this would not have been possible, that there wouldn't have been enough lines of communication for it to end like this. I don't know uh, how many people were losing sort of hope, especially for the Israelis that were captured and then taken to you know many of whom young women children um so to see that has been you know very heartening i think it i think the thing that has bothered me and and i'm actually curious like how you've been reading about this these stories has been sort of the way that the exchanges have been referenced. It's consistently being referenced as like a prisoner for hostage exchange. And I don't think there's any other way to describe Israelis who are, who are captured and taken into Gaza as hostages. But when you start to talk about the Palestinians who are in Israeli prisons as only prisoners, I think of the 39 in the first day who were released, all were teenagers or women um, many under the age of 17, uh, many being held without charge under some program called administrative detention, where if you're either suspected of terrorism or suspected of being a Hamas collaborator, they can pick you up in the West Bank. So in Palestinian controlled territory, take you to a prison that's in the West Bank and hold you there indefinitely without trial. Um, to say that those are prisoners as if, you know, Hamas is only exchanging terrorists for hostages, I think has is just one part and parcel of like how, A, how we are hearing about this conflict in such a different way than people abroad are internalizing what's going on over there. And it's, yeah, it's, it's frustrating 
because you know, you know, following some of the discussion that we had about the IRA in Ireland and thinking about how this really like fits into just a historical narrative of when you have overwhelming like strength and power in a country from a military and a security force that this belief that the only way to hold it is to kind of exercise it in ways that, you know, we have here in the United States, this is not to single out Israel. This is like part of history, right? Like we were just talking about this in Ireland. It's very similar kind of stuff going on in apartheid South Africa, but we can see it now and we can sort of see that this isn't how we've ever been able to maintain peace, right? Peace is in the absence of violence, not the presence of justice, that kind of sort of situation. And I think like, of course, I don't want any more civilians to die. I don't, I would love to see all these people who are being held in places against their will to be returned home, to be reunited with their families. But I worry about, you know, what's, what's next here. And I think the U.S. really has an important role to play. And, you know, when we talk about sort of foreign policy in these debates, I think that this is where we've lacked in having kind of the ability to have either varying opinions or a nuanced opinion or really like anything that hasn't been. And, may, and maybe in the past it wasn't. I mean, like you, I think people who are who are intimately familiar with this situation would would argue differently. But in some ways, maybe it hadn't been the right time before. But now, more than ever it feels like the right time to sort of re-examine how we move this situation forward and not just allow the status quo to be the status quo anymore. So that was a bit rambling. Um, I think there is, there, there's like, a, in, there's a lot of hope to be taken from how things have unfolded, but there has been a lot of destruction and pain and suffering in the past month in the past years that needs to be accounted for but like we've been in this cycle of of retribution for too long um and so like at some point somebody has to swallow it and and we have to like end there because yeah i don't I don't know. Yeah. That, yeah, it, it, a, lot yeah. of, a lot of shit. Out, yeah. No, no you, I think that's fair. I think it's thoughtful that you've been clearly wrestling with this and how complicated it is. And I appreciate that. I do think the last thing you said reminds me of exactly what Professor Larry Donnelly had said last year, last episode, when he said one of the lessons of the Good Friday Agreement was that both sides had to eat some stuff, right? It's not that somebody has to do it, right? It's real easy for the Israelis to be like, well, you guys, you did October 7th, you have to eat it in Hamas. Or, the Palestinian Authority, whomever is now in charge, who's going to be in charge of Palestine going forward to say, look, you just killed probably tens of thousands of us. You have to eat it. Right. It's, it's ultimately going to be have to be both of them. And as Professor Donnelly alluded to, that is likely going to have to lead to changes in leadership on, on, on both sides for, for something like that to happen. And of course, that's the hope. And the hope is that happens sooner or later. Um, you know, the, the realist in me knows that that's it's not going to be sooner, that this is three months six months uh, and we can hope for shorter um, and certainly for everyone's sake over there the, for innocent people we hope that th this wraps up sooner rather than later but 
think the reality, the realist in me, Ricky, for once, is, sees that this 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 truce right now, this ceasefire right now, uh, is is unfortunately, I think, just a, a small blip in what's going to be a long struggle. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. No doubt. All right. Before we we wrap up, just briefly, this week was the 60th anniversary of President Kennedy's assassination. Really, I think one of the seminal moments in the 20th century for the United States, certainly here in Boston, he was very much, um, you know, the Boston, Massachusetts, and an Irish Catholic, one one of our own in so many ways. And so I think it's more we feel it more in some ways up up here. But I think it's it's something that continues to reverberate. You and I, whenever every year we talk about 9-11 and knowing exactly where we were at the time. And I think for people of our parents' generation or maybe a little bit older grandparents' generation, for them, like that was that moment of they can tell you exactly where they were and how much that that moment changed history. And unfortunately, how many unanswered questions we still have about that, the the murder of, of President Kennedy and it's just it's, it's all of those things. And while, Ricky, it's something I probably note in passing every year on the 60th anniversary, I've definitely spent a little bit more time uh, reading about it and reflecting on it. And just, you know, we've been, you know, knock on wood, we've been really lucky where we haven't had a, a president assassinated in a long time since Kennedy, obviously. But to think we had Kennedy and then just, you know, MLK and um you know, Malcolm X all, all within, uh, Robert Kennedy, all within a few years of each other. We sometimes think like, oh my goodness, I can't believe things were ever worse than they were, they are now. But looking at some of that make, makes you think. Yeah, it it definitely does. And and it's one of those things that, well, I guess something like a January 6th is such like a wake up call that even though we've made so many strides to really like protect our elected officials through secret service and whatever else that there are, there's still, you know, there's still a lot of things that just rely on us respecting the institution and like, yeah, the, uh, the norms and how we, you know, how we as individuals contribute to the up you know, the rule of law and like just our, like the fabric of our society being upheld. Like it is as much as it is on the people who have these as their professions. It's also like on, it's also on us. Yeah, definitely. And I just think from a historical perspective, it's so fascinating on the one hand, of course, you have like the, what might've been this, this really in some ways, like this dawning of this new, the first president who was born in the, in the 20th century and this idea of hope and Camelot and like that we really can make change here in, in ways that like it seemed like President Kennedy was like this beacon of of light and hope and maybe the assassinations of RFK and Malcolm and uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King don't who knows you know like you just don't know how it turned how the butterfly effect from from that knock on on the other hand there's naturally anytime someone is killed when they're young especially in a position of power there's this kind of glorification and this like uh you know you kind of put everything you can gold tint on everything and you know you, there's maybe not a proper reflection of how successful it was his, his presidency up to that time you know i just think from a historical perspective it, it's so interesting and but 60 years ricky it's um you know it's 
yeah, I don't know. It, it it hit me in a weird way for someone that wasn't around then and like has no necessarily personal connection to it. But I just think for someone that like me or like us that are tuned into these things in the sense of history and how this kind of how, how history moves forward, it was interesting to reflect this past week. And I'm sure many people were doing that, particularly people that to recall the times. Yeah, I'll say. Well, Ricky, we, we covered a lot tonight uh, and we hope people enjoyed the format and enjoyed the topics. Again, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes with our phenomenal guests, we encourage you to go back and listen. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone out there. We feel incredibly lucky that people listen and support us and we really appreciate it. We are definitely thankful for that. Until next time, buddy. See ya. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share Opinions we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments. In an early morning bus, I need an early morning bus. There's hope behind the bluster, cause the old Main Street may not sell. It's full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's trying to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for. Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds, 
Champagnes, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus. 